So if you're a guest with us today, if you're visiting for the first time, today is an interesting day to be here. In some ways good, in some ways very unique, because we are starting a new book. We finished 2 Corinthians, and today we are going to start our new series on the book of Acts. And I'd like to walk you through with me going through the book of Acts. So think about this. You have no Sunday school curriculum. There's no one to tell you what you should do to introduce a book. You say to yourself, if I was going to introduce a book of the Bible that I was going to teach, what would I need to include? So maybe maybe the author would be important or what about like the philosophy of history and recent studies on the book of Acts? You think that might be important? Is the Aramaic used in the book of Acts or is it or is it just Koine Greek? The date, where was it written from? When did it become part of the canon? What was the place of writing? Maybe what are some key manuscripts that were used and if they're dependable? What's the history of its interpretation? As you can imagine, all those things on this list are probably not particularly valuable to include. So as I'm reading all this material to introduce the book of Acts, you say to yourself, what does one need to include when introducing the book of Acts? And it made me think of this. You know, oftentimes we think of apologetics, defending the faith. How do we defend our faith? And I would argue that there's about three levels at which we defend our faith. The first one, or the third one, depending on how you want to look at it, is sort of the highly academic way of defending our faith. So let me read to you a section of a commentary I wrote that was talking about the importance of the manuscripts behind the book of Acts. Major uh, versions, uh, versional witnesses for the Alexandrian family include Alpha or Sinaiticus in the 4th century, A or Alexandrianus, and B or Vaticanus. The Byzantine text is best represented by H, L, P, and 049, which is 9th century. The Western text has witnessed in D, also known as Codex uh, Bizet, I guess, and the Harclean Syriac, Codex D, lacks Acts 8. Chapters 14, uh, 21, 2 through 8, 16 through 18. Codex E is Greek and Latin text with a mix of mostly Western and some Byzantine writings. It would take me like a week to be able to read that, okay, to know what it all means. It might take you like years to figure out what it all means and to make any use out of it. So you say, so why is this important? This highly academic stuff, this is why it's important. So while I may not include it in a sermon like this, one day, if you're a kid like Eli, you're going to go to college. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to get a college professor. And you know what he's going to know? He's going to know what this means. And you're not going to know what it means. And he's going to be able, or she's going to be able to say, it's cute how you went to that Sunnyside Baptist Church. That's cute. You thought you learned apologetics there. You thought you learned how to defend your faith. You don't even know how to read Aramaic. 
I mean, come on. You're going to convince me that I should be a Christian and follow the Bible? And they will be able to walk you through text after text. They'll show you discrepancy after discrepancy. And you'll be like, I'm 18 years old. I, I mean, I can't even function at this level, right? And actually, being 18, you might even have a better shot. Some of us that are older, learning all this now might be incredibly difficult, right? So you have sort of this highly academic sort of defense of the faith. Another example of this would be the arguments for God. So you might have heard the cosmological argument, God's the first cause of everything. The teleological argument, God designed everything, so there's God. And then there's the third one that we often use, and it's called the ontological argument. Now, I started realizing how complicated the ontological argument was, was when I heard this. Dr. Myron was probably my, one of my favorite professors at faith. He never got married. Everyone joked that he, he was married to his books. When you went into his apartment, you opened up his kitchen cupboards, you opened up his oven, guess what was in them? Books. He, 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 at some point, he quit cooking. He just had books everywhere in his little apartment. And so he was one of the smartest, most educated, the most well-read people that I knew. And he's like, yeah, I talked to a philosophy professor from, I think it was University of Texas, some, some university. And he said, that philosophy professor told me the ontological argument was very good, but frankly, I don't understand it. Dr. Myron, like the guy that does nothing with his life but like read all the time? Struggles to even understand. So he has this sort of highly academic. And I think this is very valuable. I think this is what it matters to us. We all can't function at that level, right? We all can't be there. We just don't even have time, even if we had the mental capacity to function at that level. But I think it's important to support the people that do. The people that do. Because if you lose the highly academic level, you know what happens? They train the next level. And then they train the next level, and they train the next level. And by the, so if at the highly academic level, they've decided that the Bible's not the word of God, you don't need to worry about it, it's not true. By the time it trickles down to all of us, guess what it's going to be? This Bible thing's kind of a waste of time, right? So the highly academic thing's important. The second sort of level of apologetics, I would argue, is more the popular apologetics. So this is sort of trying to take some of the more highly academic stuff, or maybe they're not even particularly familiar with the higher academic, because I might be able to write a popular apologetics book, but I probably, you know, it'd be an insane amount of work. When I say I could, it would be like, take 10 years type of thing, and I don't want to pretend like I could do it tomorrow. But you see, you, know, you got the popular level of apologetics. So like Lee Strobel, Lane Craig, Tim Keller, you know, they kind of work at the popular level of apologetics, and they're super valuable as well. And then the third level, or the first level, depending on how you want to look at it, is the Christian living. And I think this is an incredibly important apologetic because you can be as highly academic or you can have memorized Lee Strobel's book or you can do whatever you want. And if you don't live for it like a Christian, guess what people are going to say? Baloney. Right? Baloney. All the smarts in the world, all the reading you've ever done don't mean anything. So as we go through the book of Acts, while there might be many, many interesting things in an introduction of the book of Acts, things we need to be able to defend the text, defend that Paul was the author, uh, Luke was the author, and so on and so forth, I would argue that many of us, though we need to support the higher level apologetics, we need to encourage those, we need to engage in the popular apologetics to the most we can, 
many of us, the most important role we play is the most important of these three levels, I would argue, and that is the Christian living apologetics. You get nowhere with anybody if you're good at arguing, but you can't live it. Most of you, we're talking about when you became a Christian, especially became a Christian later in life, I highly doubt someone argued you into it. Maybe, and that may be true, and apologetics are certainly valuable for not um, losing your faith or questioning your faith, but Christian living, I think, is the most important. So as we go through, and I'm just going to start introducing the book of Acts a little bit, we'll talk a little bit more about it as we get into chapter 1 next week, I'm just going to start giving you a taste of what the book of Acts is about. When we talk about the book of Acts, sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. So in Hellenistic writing, so in Greek writing, there was this genre called Acts, and he's usually talked about the great deeds of an individual, like the Acts of Alexander the Great, and it would be written, and it was a type of literature. And so sometimes these are called the Acts of the Apostles. Sometimes there's another one called the Acts of the Kings. I think it was about Egypt. And so this particular book, when it was called the Acts of the Apostles, Apostles early in church history, was talking about how the wonderful acts that the apostles did. But I would kind of argue that this may not be the greatest way to look at it. Because when we think about the book of Acts, it's not so much about the key characters, but it is about the acts that God does throughout the beginning of the church. We know that the author is Luke. He also wrote the book of Luke, and then he transitions into the book of Acts. We know he's highly educated. He had a very impressive use of Greek, which is why we know he's so educated. And if we go into the contents of the book, we know it's a selective history, first of all, meaning this. If you tell the story of anything, you have to really shorten it down. Like, I'm going to tell you about the Civil War, and I've got five minutes. I mean, come on, right? I mean, come on. I'm going to leave out so many details. I don't even know the details, all of them. And even if I did, I would have to leave most of them out. And so if you're going to write the history of the church beginning, which Acts is, talking about this transition from the Old Testament to the New, of course the history is incredibly selective. As a matter of fact, it will tell stories about churches and communities of churches. It doesn't even tell how those churches started. We don't even know how they began. But we can't know how they began because Luke had to make choices on history. The next thing is a sequel to Luke's gospel. I mentioned that. We would see that in Acts 1.1. It's one of the longest New Testament books. There's a 1,003 verses compared to the 1,151 in Luke and the 1,071 in Matthew. So it's really one of the longer uh, books in the New Testament. It is really a key book in the history of God's plan and that it does this transition where it establishes a new era from the Old Testament to the New. So think with me now. Old Testament believer, what's your goals? You want to live in Israel? You want to have the land that God promised? Certain geographical area? We want to have a temple. We want to have this temple. It's really, really important. We have priests that serve in this temple. We want to have sacrifices. We have these 12 tribes or 14 tribes, depending on how you want to look at it. They each do their role. So it's like this is your life. And then suddenly we're transitioning into this church thing in which suddenly now the Gentiles are a part of it, which is like super wild. You suddenly don't care about the temple. 
I mean, that is just craziness. I mean, go to Israel today. I've mentioned this before. Go to Israel. What do they care about? The people that are really strong Jews that are really orthodox. Man, they want the temple back. Read the Old Testament. Try to do what God commands you in the Old Testament with no temple. So this is a new establishment of the church era, this transitionary period is what Acts tells us about. So you have a movement that's rooted in Judaism, but now includes the Gentiles as well. It has, the book of Acts has stories of faithful witnesses, people that stayed faithful in the face of persecution, such as Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul, Barnabas. We'll learn about all those. We learn about the role of Holy Spirit in the new community. So Jesus promises to send a helper. Well, how's this helper thing going to work? Where would we read about how this whole Holy Spirit's going to work? I mean, think about how different this is. You know, we, we sing songs in church like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, right? And this is the, the, the lyrics to our songs, talking about the Holy Spirit. We talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit had a, such a different role in the Old Testament that when we transition to the New Testament, when Jesus promises this new helper to come, I mean, how is this going to work? How is this? This is so new. And number seven here, the third of the material consists of speeches. So we're going to learn a lot about the different speeches made. I once memorized Stephen's speech for a play I was in as I was sitting there thinking, I wonder how much of it I can remember. I started out with this. Four score and seven years ago. So it's like, I don't remember anything, I think, is what I decided. I don't remember it at all. But we'll be going through a number of the speeches. So the overall purpose of this book is to show God's activity through Christ and the Spirit to all people. That's so general. You know, it feels like such a big picture purpose, but it really is. If you try to narrow it down, you're probably not going to get every aspect of the book. It's really showing God's activity through Christ. So Christ has sent his Holy Spirit, and he's come to all people, including Jews and Gentiles. And while that seems big picture, it's a really revolutionary. Some key theological topics. The first thing is the Gentiles. So this is a big deal. The Holy Spirit, the new community identity. We talked about that. The law. What do you do with the law now? You spent your whole life obeying the Old Testament law. Like you ate because of it, right? Like no pork, like bacon's, bacon's good now. It is good. I, I really like it. If you're wondering, it's great. Emily has talked me into eating vegan for a month at some point. It's going to be the worst month of my entire life, possibly. Looking forward to that. Number five is the practice of Acts Catholic. So some people think that the practices in Acts are kind of a pre-Catholic. Is that true? We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that topic as we go. And ultimately, we'll see the triumph of the gospel. But there's this one last thing I'd like us to think about as we look at verse 1. It says, in the, book of, in the first book of Theophilus, the first book meaning, meaning the book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You know, if you, you go to school and you go to philosophy class, they'll say, oh, reference to history. So we see Luke referencing to this other book you read. This References to history, you cannot find truth there. You cannot find truth there. You cannot find truth in writings about the past. 
And so through philosophy class, before you open the text of Scripture for the first time, your philosophy teacher will teach you, you cannot find truth. Think about it this way. You come to church today. Say, I was at Sunnyside Baptist Church on Mother's Day, 2019. Pastor Joel wore a purple shirt. Someone reads that later. Is my shirt purple? Well, it's a lot of purple, but it's got some white. You know, this is like light purple, right? It's like light purple. You know, maybe maybe there's like a shade of purple, or, or some of you might have a cool fancy name that I don't know about. My wife probably does of what color this really is. And and even then, maybe this is purple in, in Wichita, Kansas in 2019, but if someone read this 100 years from now, maybe they wouldn't even consider this even a shade of purple. So when you read history, can you really depend on it? I mean, the, the professor might say, I mean, you can't even... You can't even say what shirt you're wearing with accuracy. How are you going to say you are going to find some sort of absolute moral truth in some book of history? And then you go on and on. You say, well, you think you know what Paul did? You think what Paul wrote here? You think what Luke wrote here in Acts? You think that's, you can count on that? And I want to point out to you something that was pointed out to me many years ago by a guy named D.A. Carson that really, really helped me. It is 100% true that it is impossible to know 100% about anything. You cannot know everything about anything. And this is what I mean by this. You have this scope. And perfect knowledge is represented by the dot in the middle. You know everything about it. It is impossible to know everything about everything. I'd like to think my dad knows everything about accounting. He doesn't. He doesn't. There's different states. Oh, and there's different countries. I mean, think about the simplest thing. Like, do you know about cars? Let's say you're a car guy. Well, I know about cars. I mean, do you, like, know how the computer chip works? Could you solder it back together if it broke? Could you program it? Could you build it? Where do they get the, where do they get the materials to make the computer chip? I thought you knew everything there was to know about cars. You can never know everything about anything. So what I'm going to suggest to you is this. As we gain in our knowledge, we start out on the outside of the circle, and we get a little closer. We know a little bit more. We know a little bit more. We know a little bit more. It is a fallacy to say, if I can't get to the dot, if I can't have 100% certainty, then I can't know anything. Because if you lived your life saying, I have to be 100% certain that Luke Luke wrote the book of Acts or whatever, or that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if that was your standard for living your life, you would be paralyzed. Well, I I don't know everything about cars. I guess I can't drive. 
I, I don't know everything. I can't trust it. I, I know I don't know everything about it. I don't know everything about accounting. Wanda, you better quit. I mean, you don't know everything. You don't know everything. This is this fallacy. So while in our Christian life we say, I know a little bit more about Christ. I know a little bit more. I know a little bit more about him. I know a little bit more about the book of Acts. I know a little bit more about the book of John. I know a little bit more about God's love. I know a little bit more. I know a little bit more. A little bit. Are we ever going to hit 100% knowledge, 100% certainty on everything in this side of heaven? We never are. But if someone tells you, you have to be 100% certain in order to act, it is ridiculous because they cannot live that way. You cannot live that way, cannot function that way. And so I will say that as some of you younger people go off to college, when someone tries to tell you, well, you don't know everything about this, so it can't be true, they're leading you down a wrong path. There's not 100% certainty about anything, but it doesn't mean there's no such thing as knowing things that are true. 100% certainty does not mean nothing can be true. My mom is my mom. And well, yes, I guess I wasn't, you know, can't, can't remember it happening when I or whatever. Thankfully. I still am 100% confident, right? I'm confident my mother's my mother, and I can know this to be true. The standard in which they set in order to try to abolish any sort of truth or any sort of ability to understand history is a false statement, put it that way. And so as we go through the book of Acts, I would like to encourage us that though we know not everything about the book of Acts, that though there are texts that aren't perfectly 100% in agreement, and if you got someone really smart up here, they'd be able to point every negative thing out they possibly could. This does not mean we cannot have certainty, that we can be confident that the book of Acts is the word of God. And as we walk through it, and as we learn about how the church transitioned from the law to grace, from the, the, the sacrifices, to the living sacrifice that we are today, that we can have 100% confidence. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We just pray as we delve into the book of Acts. I just thank you that we can have confidence in your word. That we, I thank you that we, won't, we don't need to be fooled by thinking that if we don't know everything, if we're not 100% sure about each detail, that we can't trust it. I just know that we can trust you, that we have faith in you, and that the evidence you've provided us through what you've done in our life, the evidence that you've provided through the incredible sustaining of your word over thousands of years and its incredible continuance, the power that it's had in the world, that you have given us evidence that we can trust. Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.